Hey guys, welcome to the Bill Barnwell Show. I am Bill Barnwell. Today, very excited to talk to a friend of the show about a very exciting new podcast series coming out elsewhere. A five-part series on the competition and evolution inside the NFL's youngest coaching tree called the Play Callers. Joining us to talk about that is the Athletics' Jordan Rodrigue. Jordan, you have been laboring over this for how long exactly? The last year, yeah. The last been, year. Uh, grueling. <laughs> Only a year for these podcasts. Uh, a really, really cool idea and... I, I told you I will be up front. I have listened to almost two of the series so far, and they are incredible. I've learned so much about people who I thought I knew or I had some idea about. I've learned, frankly, how much these these coaches from this coaching tree curse, which I was not aware of. But more than anything, I, I think it's been so fascinating so far to hear how much these coaches have opened up to you and how much insight you get into the elements of being an NFL coach, especially coming up. That's the part I'm listening to now that you don't get to hear anywhere else. So I want to start just from the very sort of beginnings of the idea. And and I just want to set the scene for people in terms of where this begins. So, Go back a year for me. Go back to your initial thoughts. Go back to what ties everyone together here in this coaching tree. Yeah, thanks, Bill, for the question. And yes, it is like oxygen, uh, certain words that they use. It's like how we use commas. Um, They use (laughs) other words, (laughs) which is fine. I mean, that's coaching. That's real. That's what it sounds like inside inside these buildings. Um, So, um, okay, so... I pitched this project a year ago and that's when, when they said yes is when I started like the real series reporting on it. After we did the Andrew Luck podcast over the athletic, I was like, Oh, we do that now. I want to do that. And so, because it was so fantastic. Zach Kiefer did such a great job. And I had had this idea for a couple of years, um, since 2020 actually, because I was standing at a Sean McVay run practice, a Rams Mm -hmm. practice. And it was very soon, it was very early after NFL lockdown uh, restrictions had lifted and the Rams were installing a new defense. And it had roots in the Vic Fangio, what we now know in its modern iteration as the Vic Fangio system. Mm-hmm. Um, I had known that Sean McVay was pretty obsessed with that system because it had humiliated him in the Super Bowl when Bill Belichick borrowed lots of principles from it and somehow installed them over two weeks' time um, in order to completely shut down what had been a truly revolutionary Rams offense through those mm-hmm two years, 17 and 18, and in stunning fashion and truly stunning, you know, Sean McVay had, had been obsessed with it and he, and he'd wanted to find out its secrets and, um, use it against other people, frankly. And so like, how can I make you feel how I felt? Um, and so, um, he, he hires Brandon Staley and they're installing this first in theory because they're all on zoom. And so it's all philosophy, language, and theory. And so they're starting to use, use words that make the system feel alive, um, such, such as Brandon Staley still uses this word a lot, exp- expresses itself. So instead mm-hmm. of um, call, say, saying a play happens, it's a play expresses itself into or this call mm-hmm. expresses itself into. And I started noticing language changes first. 
And then when I get out on the field, um, I had gotten a tip from someone else in the building to stand behind the defensive backs because that was where I would hear more of that language that I was really curious about. And they, in, in years past, and especially when Sean McVay had Wade Phillips as a defensive coordinator, there was sort of this, um, it, it was a real thing, but they would kind of, defensive players and coaches would kind of like half grimace, half joke about it, where it's like, oh, Sean McVay needs to install pieces of his offense or he needs to problem solve his offense. So, you know, that's what a lot of the practice periods could look like at times is Sean McVay is like running experiments against you, essentially, <laughs> right? And and Wade Phillips was so established and, and Sean McVay really openly credits him for allowing him to do that so that the offense could really manifest into what it became in 17 and 18. But this was not going to be that. Um, this was Sean McVay instead saying, okay, I, knew, I know you need to get this defense off the ground, so let's try to just call practice against each other. Obviously, there are some limitations and rules in accordance with the NFL policies, but let's, as much as we can, let's just try to call these practices against each other. Mm-hmm. And so I start watching this almost like this electric current take hold, rippling through the space. Um, it's the first time a lot of these guys had, had been back together. Everyone was very excited, obviously, to be there and to be doing football things instead of just talking about them. But it was something more. It was almost like I describe it in the series as I walked into practice that day feeling like I had walked in one area era of football and I had left in another because of how alive that system was and then truly how it was crashing against Sean McVay's system. And we know, Bill, and you've talked about this a lot, and we've talked about this amongst each other as well, is, is the, the, the really sort of fundamental iterations of what that system was, especially in 2020, mm-hmm. is it was a perfect foil for Sean McVay's offense overall and what, what Sean's offense was at that time. And the base principles of that Fangio elemental system was philosophically a perfect foil. So if we're, lo- if we're like <laughs> looking at Shakespeare or something, he's like, oh, that's the character who will immediately antagonize our, our hero, right? Like that's, that's what that is. It's a, it's a perfect foil. And, and, but when those things clash and crash against each other, something new happens. Some, some sort of evolution takes place. And watching that in real time was was stunning. You don't recognize what's happening to your brain or, or what you're seeing or feeling or thinking at that time. You're just watching something really exciting. And then as you deprocess and start to watch the ripple effects that take place after that and after those catalytic days in the summer, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it was stunning. And so for me, the series is, is really um, in part an homage to that and that feeling because that also has happened with all these other coaches who are featured in the series at some point in their history and in their timeline they've made decisions that have created this catalyst or these ripple effects that are now shaping what the modern league looks like it's obviously not just these coaches Andy Reid does this all the time Bill Mm -hmm. Belichick is a master at it but all of these guys specifically first experienced what this could be like when they were all assistant coaches together and they were clashing against each other and they've all sort of carried this forward into their own um their own teams and and finding their own identities and that's what I thought the story could be and and so then I just kind of jumped into it and never looked back yeah I mean you covered a lot but but I I think the part that really stood out to me both in the context of what you were saying but also then in, in the context of listening to the podcast so far is the dynamic between these coaches when they were together 
in Washington. And this is covered at length in the first episode. It is fascinating. It is so interesting. And it has maybe one of the worst names I've ever heard for a group of people uh, <laughs> used for these coaches. So what what was going on? What was the dynamic between these coaches when they were in Washington? Yeah, well, Washington, that was the fun bunch. So that was a that that one's okay. Houston, yes. Robert Sala almost uh, steals the entire show and derails the entire thing. And I say that kindly because he tells the story about himself and Matt LaFleur and Mike McDaniel in Houston and what the elders, when they were quality control assistants, and what the elders on the staff, their nickname for them. So I urge people to go check that one out um, and prepare to be a little bit grossed out. <laughs> um, and uh, But it, it, it's, all, it's all fun, right? And then um, when they get to Washington, they're sort of um, sarcastically known as the fun bunch, right? Because it's a bunch of kids. And it, it's Kyle Shanahan and Mike McDaniel and Sean McVay and Matt LaFleur floor and Raheem Morris and you know a, a couple of other people characters who pop up in the series and they're all so young and, and Mike Shanahan basically off of his studies and his conversation with Kyle about all of these young coaches that Kyle had hired and then trained um, at, at previous stops including in Houston mm-hmm. um, he, he starts to have this idea of like what if all these guys were in a room together but then Mike Shanahan also had this really particular and specific coaching style that he got from Bill Walsh um, about not really letting you know where you stood. So you're always constantly competing to prove where you stand. Mm -hmm. Um, And that manifests itself into competing to get calls on Kyle Shanahan's call sheet. (laughs) And that, that is fascinating to me in itself because that type of dynamic, you know, I'm not going to put words in anyone's mouth and, or anything like that, but in, on a personal level for me, that type of that layer to any sort of uh, co-workership, friendship, coaching dynamic, that to me is tone setting in a lot of ways about what that friendship or that co-workership or coaching relationship is is going to be down the road. And, and you kind of start to see it when these coaches start to compete each other with each other as people who run their own teams at this mm-hmm. point. So they're they're fighting with each other constantly in Washington or trying to find little advantages against each other while also really truly friends and like close with each other and have a lot of respect for each other but they're also there's that undercurrent of I want to beat you to get my idea onto the call sheet Mm -hmm. and you know whether it's subconscious or conscious conscious that Kyle knew at the time what I really think it's more of is is him modeling how he'd seen his dad um sort of have these environments and create these coaching environments. And that's so interesting to me because it just sort of naturally occurs then that this evolution happens because you've got some of the best and the brightest on the staff and they're all competing with each other. And so if they're looking for leverages, sort of the cream rises to the top in this regard. And then you 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 add to the mix a player of such caliber as, as RG3 was entering his rookie season and I mean, it, the the inventing at live speed and some of the things that they shared about that time was was just fascinating. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. I mean, RG3 talking about the install of that offense, how Kyle Shanahan basically flipped his offense on the fly to account for moving to the pistol. I mean, there's some really nerdy stuff in there, which if you're a fan of this show, you're a fan of. Even down to one of my favorite things from the first episode was Mike McDaniel talking about how he taught himself Excel to help get himself in the building and stay in the building, and then how he would come across assistant coaches a decade later still using his Excel sheets to help break down stuff. So fascinating and so inside baseball. I loved it. Yeah, that was, I'm glad you brought that. That was one of my favorite details too, because Mike McDaniel was so detailed and open and talking about how he thinks about football and how he um, troubleshoots plays and, and how he creates things and mm-hmm. thinks about things. And, and he does that throughout the course of the, of the series, all five episodes. And it's interesting because you had to find little edges and little leverages. And when we, you know, we're like the internet generation, right? So we think like, how did you not know Excel? Well, at that time, one of the big things is like computers are very new. Coaches are literally going to like night school to learn how to type. Like it's just, it's one of those things where it was a different, it was different. Um, And things changed so fast and you had to adapt like in terms of, you know, even societally, we had to adapt in terms of how much technology played into a part of our lives. But this is like, you know, the early 2010s and these programs became some of the foundation of how they would draw and log plays Mm -hmm. and they would get saved because, you know, sometimes a coach would, you know, decade, you know, years later, a coach would will see or pull up a protection. Um, in this case, they are talking about protections. And Mike McDaniel had diagrammed it out using these compu- these very early stages of these computer programs. Mm-hmm. And what would start to happen was those documents would get passed around as the coaching staffs would sort of pollinate elsewhere and people get hired elsewhere. And they would take their documents with them, right? And then they would, what, what, what has actually happened before is they've sort of redone the protection erased his name at the top and then typed typed theirs in because because you have to show you have to you have to present something that you you know have autonomy autonomy over mm-hmm. and and these things these copies these different versions of each other i think that's such a um a truly great metaphor for what we've seen this offense do over the years is literally um the language of it has been copied and and tweaked and changed and and different iterations of it have just um folded over itself time and time and time and time again and you can physically see it happening through some of those documents Mm -hmm. absolutely and that that team in washington was so fascinating in terms of coming in with a different style of quarterback a different style of offense the changes they made and then how things collapsed so spectacularly Uh, of course they rg3 gets hurt late in the season he comes back he makes it to the playoff game He gets injured in the playoff game. They lose. He's hurt for most of the next year. And then the following year, the uh, Washington football team struggles. Mike Shanahan gets fired. And you really hear about the impact it had on Kyle Shanahan. And I I wanted to ask you about that in terms of the Washington situation. We can't do these sort of, you know, we can't change history. We can't make it so Robert Griffin stays healthy, but just from your perspective in terms of how they've changed and how they change over the course of of your reporting, do you think it could have worked if RG3 had stayed healthy? Or do you think they almost had to fail in Washington to grow and succeed as coaches in in the big picture? Well, I certainly think both 
could have been possible. I think, you know, there's a time where I could see, you know, Kyle Shanahan was, was growing, um, so much and, and like sort of the chatter about him was growing to the point where I don't know that he could have possibly stayed there much longer, even if mm-hmm. things went well, um, because his, his star was rising essentially. Um, and, and so I think it's inevitable that all these guys obviously would split out from each other based, just based again, like on the dynamics that we talked about. Um, but you know, it, it's, it was really a fascinating conversation with, um, with Robert a, about these things because, the what they were doing, there was this sense of um, wanting to finish what they'd started, like really develop and troubleshoot this this forward and see where they could take it and how far it could go. And obviously, with the injuries in that situation, it gets derailed both, you know, for the, for the player, obviously, but also for the coaching staff as well. Um, there's a duality there uh, of 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 that toll. And that's what I really wanted to show. Obviously, you know, there's so much outstanding reporting that has gone on from that time. Um, dozens and dozens and dozens of articles that have dissected and assessed the situation. But there's this sense of when you're creating and thinking of new ideas and, and you want to innovate and you're a player who wants to innovate as RG mm. certainly was and, and, and has been always in, in as a player, um, and then also as a coach, you you, you want to innovate as well. Um, there's going to be a cost because football is a brutal, painful, cruel game. Mm-hmm. And anytime you do have ideas, I mean, you can even hear it. Mike McDaniel's talking about an audible for his own read play. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's peel that back a little bit further. That was one of the the, the defining moments of Mike McDaniel's life to that point was creating in-game an audible um, that helped them beat Dallas and, and get to the playoffs and mm-hmm. detailing, you know, what it was and what it meant. What, what's his own read play? So you think about, okay, well, that's a, that's a physical play. That's a demanding play. There's a toll. There's always a toll. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even in the, in the best and brightest ideas and the, in the, the truest ideas that are, that are born of pure curiosity and, and wanting to innovate Football will cost you always. And so to me, one of the most fascinating um, explorations of this series is, is what that toll is. Um, so, you, you know, you, everyone has a different opinion about whether they could have sustained schematically, specifically, I do think they could have. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, everyone has a different opinion on what it would have looked like or, or whether they could have sustained it. Um, but I think they all learned this huge lesson about what it costs to innovate and um, I think some of them, especially the coaches who, who continued pushing, um, accepted that personal toll. Um, and, and I think there, there's a huge lesson for football fans and fans of, of um, you know, the sport is, is truly what it costs, not just as a coach, obviously, but certainly as a player who is bringing these things to life and, and wanting to participate in that innovation um, what, it, what it ultimately can cost and often does cost. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no 
competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8-Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza, better because it has to be. You talk about the toll on both sides, both the toll in terms of what was being asked of players and the repercussions, and also the toll that was that was being incurred by these coaches. You specifically with McDaniel uh, talk about his addiction issues, how he had to go coach in the minor leagues for a couple of years. He literally has the exact number of days he was coaching outside of the NFL, and and he talks about how he had to basically survive in the NFL earlier in his career during that time in Washington by learning the run game, because that was going to be his only way for to to sort of get in Kyle Shanahan's ear. It's just fascinating though, isn't it, Bill? Because you have like a full range of what it is to be human right there, (laughs) you know? And, and to me that that was where there were times where I was almost like fearful of this project, right? Because what is it what are you going to what are you going to discover about what it means to be a human that will it, it will be hard to process and what was really cool was everybody is so in this on this coaching tree or the characters involved in the story were so open about that because they live there right yes. they live in that place and to me that was one of the defining qualities that really to me is the trademark of the series is there's complexity, there's nuance, there's duality Mm -hmm. um, because all these people live there. Um, And Mike McDaniel was, you know, he's gone through the other things that other people in this coaching tree have not experienced. Um, But at the same time, so has Kyle Shanahan. So has Sean McVay. So has Matt LaFleur, but all in different, different ways, all different types of, of living their lives. Um, and they happen to be doing it right in front of us because of the, the jobs that they have, which, um, to me really shows in how they problem solve and really shows in how they establish their identities and, and how they design and, and frankly, how they call their offenses. Um, Mm -hmm. every experience that they've lived, um, really has showed that Mike, Mike, Mike McDaniel, um, you know, knowing, remembering the exact number of days that he was out of the NFL. And, and then later in the series goes on to talk about how, you know, if, if I could just stay in the NFL, I know I can build off of this. I know I can do this. And reminding himself that he belongs there, reminding himself that, that that's a place, the, that is a place for him. Um, to me, there's something very human about that. And, and, and certainly um, from, from a lot of what these, what these sort of quote unquote characters have showed us through the series. His comparison of not wanting to become an 80s rocker. Uh, <laughs> very interesting. And, and there's, there's such a human element to this, though, that I think, you know, as someone who's not in, in, in the trenches of being on a beat every day, like, I, I don't get to see this very often, just in terms of, you know, a fear that I think all of us have in our careers. Mike McDaniel coming out and saying, basically, you know, I was worried about sort of getting trapped or worried about, you know, that that my hard work would not result for anything, that nobody would see it, that nobody would recognize what I had to offer. 
I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I, that's not a football fear. That's that's a human fear. That that's in any profession as you start out early in your career. And I think it's really easy to empathize with, even though these people are incredibly talented and smart, and end up having these very successful careers in the years to come. You know, it's not that far removed from being in those positions and being in those moments of being afraid that you're not going to be recognized, even though you may have a lot to offer uh, to your profession. Yeah. And later in the series, um, sort of outlining and detailing some of the personal crash that Sean McFay himself went through um, in 2022 as his Mm -hmm. team, like, totally collapsed into flames around him um, and in some ways maybe because of him, (laughs) um, which he's, he's openly um, discussed. Um, There's a line that I wanted to make sure was included when I was scripting this series where there's a difference between empathy and sympathy Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't think anyone ever pities people in these positions. Um, They are head coaches. They make millions of dollars. They're doing, they're living their dreams um, they have chosen this, right? Um, they, you knew the job was dangerous when you took it, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, and they've accepted all of this, but I think what the, so nobody, nobody pities them, but I think what's really important in this sport that is again, so cruel and so demanding and so physically harmful is that, and mentally harmful is, is that empathy is that trying to at least understand who someone is, why someone is, how someone is, um, regardless of whether that's coach, player, uh, GM, assistant. Um, And I think through these types of stories, and frankly, through this type of candidness Mm -hmm. from all of these characters, um, that's how I think we can better achieve that empathy that I think is, is so desperately important to keeping the ethos of the sport itself that we love true. Um, because it is, it is being a human. That's really, I mean, you take away all of the, the hash marks and the grass and the uniforms and whatever it's, this sport is, is literally what it means to be human. I'm not going out there and tackling people. However, um, the, the, the life journey and and the journeys people go on in this, in football is, is humanity itself. And I think carrying with that, this empathy, I think is really important. Yeah. And I think what makes it so difficult for me, not not to be empathetic, but just in terms of sort of being able to go on the same roller coaster that these coaches are, is something that really, you know, I, I thought a lot about when I was preparing for this, when I was thinking about these guys and just the, the how narrow, how thin the line is between success and failure. And it's something I believe we've talked about before, whether it be on the show or off the air, um, just in terms of these coaches, where you look at what's happened for them since they took over as head coaches. And Sean McVay goes to the Super Bowl, a, a triumph. Of course, you dream of being a head coach in the Super Bowl, and he gets destroyed. I mean, the, the offense does nothing. The, the, it was a close game, but, you know, the offense basically the emperor has no clothes uh or is that that's, that's that's mixing two metaphors right sam for his new clothes uh, i'm tracking what i'm tracking here? what you're saying i appreciate yes. that <laughs> i'm sorry uh you know like like, like, like they, he gets to the biggest stage and the offense has a very ugly performance and you mentioned how it consumed mcveigh to change to un- understand the fangio defense and have the counters ready if they go back 
Kyle Shanahan, of course, makes it to the Super Bowl as the OC in Atlanta, and they famously lose a game, and that's that comes up in episode two. They go back with the Niners and are leading in the fourth quarter and lose. McVay goes back to the Super Bowl, and that was a game where, you know, for long stretches, the offense was not playing well, especially after Odell Beckham went out injured. They were struggling to run the ball dramatically. Um, one of the worst games of the year, I think, by rushing EPA. And of course, they piece things together on defense in the second half. The fourth quarter, the offense pieces together a couple of drives. They win the game and it's a triumph. But what what is so fascinating to me and what is so difficult to really latch on to and, and difficult to believe is just how narrow that line is where Yes, of course, to people who are paying more attention, like you, hopefully, sometimes like me, like Sean McVay is a success. Kyle Shanahan is a success. Mike McDaniel is a success. But in so many people's eyes, and I, I'm wondering in terms of their eyes, you know, if Sean McVay hadn't won a Super Bowl, if they had lost that game, uh, would would we feel the same way? And, and is, is that fair to even feel that way, to feel like they have to win a Super Bowl to justify you know, being seen as these great young coaches, because obviously there's so many different measures of what success is, and it's not just winning a championship. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great and thoughtful point, Bill. And I think one that comes with a couple layers to unpack because they don't win that Super Bowl, that that, that drive in, in the open of, of episode four, of this series, which is named after a Nathaniel Ratliff song, um, by the way, for anyone looking for Easter eggs, um, <laughs> it, it's it is uh, it is an episode about running blindly into a fight you think you want, um, and that you think will define you if you win it, and it doesn't, and so the opening of this episode is about how there's always been this question about this system, this offense, right? Is Mm -hmm. it the player or is it the scheme? We see it. We most talk about it with quarterbacks of the Shanahan-McVay system. Um, But we certainly, it it could apply to a lot of the offense in general, to running backs, to linemen, especially linemen, I think, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it the player or is it the system? And the only way that... The Rams win that Super Bowl. Obviously, the defense was outstanding. Um, Don't want to detract from that. Mm -hmm. But the only way they win that Super Bowl is if they keep that fourth, that that last drive going um, with the historic no-look pass by Stafford, but then also that sweep on the fourth and one that Cooper Mm -hmm. Cup gets. Um, You know, they fumbled that handoff like four times in practice that week. (laughs) Um, And... Cooper Cup and Matthew Stafford put their heads together at practice and they came up with a new way to do it. And they didn't even think Sean would call it. And, but he totally, he just, he, he, I think at that, in those moments, he just gave in, he sort of ceded control, right? Because everything about that run was about control. How can I get back? How can I get back? Mm -hmm. And it was only when he ceded control completely, his players knew that was the right play. They had, they had also workshopped it in practice to where they knew it would work if they did it a different way. Mm-hmm. They hadn't tried it, <laughs> but, but they knew, and they were convicted of that, right? And they run it, and it keeps the drive alive. Well, a few plays later, 
Sean McVay calls what he believes is like one of the worst play calls he's ever made, where he is calling a play that puts Cooper Cup right in the path of Von Bell, and the hook defender is going to jump the route. Mm -hmm. If not for Matthew Stafford making the play right with what he was able to do with his eyes and shoulders on the throw Mm -hmm. to hold the defender just a little bit longer for Cooper to then run that route to to get the ball, to keep Mm -hmm. that drive alive. And then they go down and uh, through several, you know, very debatable and questionable situations that happen there at the goal line, and then they win the game. <laughs> and and so Sean talks about this in the series, about they don't win the Super Bowl if his players did not make him right. Mm-hmm. And so that in itself, um, I think, is a really profound and, and defining moment. And what I mean to, by bringing this up to your question and, and your, your thoughtfulness that you have had about this is I think at a certain point with all of these coaches, whether they've won or lost or come close and then lost or, and I think there's obviously that, that desire to go and win the entire thing. I think that's a driving force, but I think it becomes, especially as they watch each other live their lives, it becomes less about, that's the thing, that's the ultimate goal that you achieve, and that's what defines your legacy. And certainly for Sean, it's become less about that now that he's experienced um, the other side of that. Um, I think it becomes, how can you be known as somebody who had lasting power, not just because you coached for a lot of years, but because you had ideas that shaped the league and impacted the league? And that's not how we on the outside necessarily define success. We like to know wins and losses. We like record percentages. Mm-hmm. We like, um, you know, we like numbers. <laughs> we like yes. knowing who's in control. We like knowing who to blame and who to praise. Um, it's, a, it's a very human default, I think, and especially in a sport that is defined in so many ways by numbers on a page and wins and losses. But I think as you grow within it, um, I think a lot of these coaches have started to understand a little bit more um, what it what it actually means to have ideas that change the course of something or that stay with others or to have other coaches who are um, borrowing your ideas and applying them or mm-hmm. to, to stay out in front of that innovation. Are you somebody who has been able to do that the best, to stay in front of everyone else, not necessarily with what your record says, but how you are perceived among your peers in terms of what your ideas mean. I think that's, I think that's, that's what it is. Um, I'm not obviously putting words in anyone's mouth, um, but that is what I think and what I believe for us. It's something different, obviously on the outside, but I think it becomes, you know, some of the respect that they have for a a person like Bill Belichick, you know, you, you hear it in their voices too. It's not just because he's won a crap load of Super Bowls, right? I mean, that's right. awesome. Everybody wants that. A, a lot of understanding in the sport is you, you may never get that. <laughs> of course. But, but I think some of that respect is that how he constantly has reinvented himself year over year over year to sustain, not just as a coach who's taking up space in a coaching position, 
mm-hmm. but a coach who is who is who has been known for innovating and for shape shifting and for being somebody whose ideas and principles other people seek out and want to take and i think that's um it starts to shift what what legacy really means and what success really means It's funny. It feels like it's such a long time. Like that 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 Washington team feels like it's so long ago. It's it's not. It's twelve years ago at this point. But you know, it, it's it's gone from being a situation where, you know, those coaches were the fun bunch in Washington. Like you said, they were, you know, almost at odds with the 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 other coaches on that staff who were older, who were coming from a different perspective to becoming the focal point. I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum. How many? You know, there was a point where it felt like if you had dinner with Sean McVay, you were a head coach two weeks later. And that was not fair, of course. And certainly there's plenty of coaches who have been very successful who have been hired off of Sean McVay's staff. But, you know, that that shift from we're the up and comers, we're testing things. We don't know necessarily if this stuff is even going to work to we are the the standard bearer in a lot of ways. We are the people who people are copying from. You know that that shift to sort of being the the dominant, you know, sort of thought leaders when it comes to the NFL, uh, in terms of that group of people and, and how much success they've had at the NFL level, you know, that is really fascinating because, and I'm sure this comes up later in the podcast, but these guys have had to reinvent themselves. They've been copied or or emulated or been understood to an extent where they've had to change the way they approach things. Their offenses are different now than they were six or seven years ago. They coach differently than they coached six or seven years ago. Kyle Shanahan talks about how, you know, he would not have coached the fourth quarter of that Falcons Patriots Super Bowl the same way now as someone who's older and thinks about things differently than he did in that moment as the offensive coordinator in that game against New England. So that in itself is fascinating because it's not just, hey, I had one good idea or I, you know, I, I, I came up with all these thoughts and put them in and I had no plan B. These guys have had to have a plan B, had to have a, you know, a, a counterpunch to what teams were, were coming up with to stop them and have a counterpunch to that Fangio defense that, you know, you brought up was really consuming McVeigh after that Super Bowl. Yeah, it's endless, right? Um, there's something just like so like Sisyphean about it because you roll the boulder up the hill and that works one time for one thing, but then the sport's constantly changing, the players are constantly changing, the people who run, te- you know, the way teams are built, the league itself and, and all of its evolutions and iterations, there's 32 teams that are affecting its shape-shifting every single year. And so you know that you're going to maybe have the right answer for one thing, or at least you're putting forth, as Mike McDaniel says later on, uh, with a little bit more colorfully than I'm about to say, but your your best educated guess, you're putting forward your best educated guess about the answer that you think is is going to work. Um, educated being the key word because you've you've done the work in studying what you think it will be, um, but but then it's not going to work twice because everybody else will see it mm-hmm. and everybody else will take it and try to apply it themselves to what they have and their system and their scheme and take that answer and apply it to that the problem that they see that comes up in a similar way. Because again, the duality, that problem will definitely come up again for someone else because other people will see that problem work effectively against 
one of these people. And so, you know, it's just like this constant, um, this constant give and take and, and push and pull. And so there's something so um, like futile about existing in the NFL, mm-hmm. frankly. I mean, there's a darkness to it. It's funny. Everyone makes a big thing about like Kyle Shanahan's like really dark um, comment <laughs> a few years ago. I was like, we have our first goth coach. I love it. Um, but, but like we, there is such a darkness to what they do in terms of that, that futility of, of existence. Like, because you can think of the perfect answer and no one cares. It's going to work one week and then it will never work for you again. The Rams, when they went out in front in 17 and 18 and they were just blowing the doors off of people, um, there, there was this scent. Maybe they've cracked the code, you know, maybe they've done it. But now they know better, right? Now they know that nothing lasts and and nothing is permanent. And so there are some of these coaches that I think are really, really good at at existing in that space. Um, I I brought this up before, but a lot of times Kyle Shanahan kind of reminded me of like um, one of those like long haul truckers (laughs) where like you're just like, well, you will you will be a part of this truck we'll find it fossilized somewhere like a million years from now. Right. And there are also people who struggle with existing in that space or what it means to exist and function in that space. Um, and, and those, you know, that comes out in the series too. And I think, um, that that's this huge part of it, um, is, is yes, everything is becoming so saturated and, you know, in this series, when, when choosing like the people to talk about, um, I didn't want it to be because they've won games or lost games. If they lost games and still had these personality traits, I would still want to mm-hmm. do this this series because of, like I said, the, the duality of what the experience is and the, and the complexity of it. Um, but they aren't the most successful coaches in the league. I mean, you know, shot for shot. And and but but still, there's a way about how they are seeking. That is so endlessly fascinating, um, and and truly because they've they've um, signed on to the agreement that you get you become a part of this innovation loop, even as you are trying to create new innovation loops, mm-hmm. um, and and jump off the last one before you get too caught up in it, right, and get stuck, and you're also trying to outrace everybody else. And oh, by the way, these people happen to know you better than anyone mm-hmm. else on the planet, um, and there's this like sort of. There's like this ice, the insular part of, of that. There's an isolating part of that. Mm-hmm. Like I said, not in a sympathetic way, but more so in an empathetic way. And and there's also, like I said, there's this true endlessness of, of trying to find what's next, especially as like, it's like the walls close in. There's too many people that know your secrets. So how do you find the new secrets? Mm-hmm. I don't know. They know, or they think <laughs> they know, and they could be wrong. And again, <laughs> it's all nothing, less, less Sneed ends the series saying, um, we're all doomed, so why not go for it? <laughs> speaking of, speaking of nihilism and and gothic uh, approaches towards towards football, I I have two more questions for you. Um, I I will start with a Sean McVay question because of course you covered the Rams so well for the Athletic, and you have talked with me at length on this show about Sean McVay. So let me ask you this question, and maybe there is no good answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is there anything you learned about Sean McVay from the process of reporting this broad story for this podcast series that you didn't know already that really stood out to you? Well, I knew he was kind of a psychopath. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, they all are. They all have, uh, as Raheem Morris says, uh, psychopath tendencies. But, sure. um, but so for me, I think it was more about 
the eco I learned more about the ecosystems in which all of these coaches separately exist. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what, and I, and I've said this to him and I think part of what, um, ultimately brought Sean McVay back from, um, Christ sort of crises. And then also that crash that his team had, and they figured out how they were going to take steps forward. Um, and, and how he was going to take steps forward was having people in continuity around him. And so there's a very different type of crash when you know you have support and people will do whatever it takes organizationally to make sure that you um, can get out of it, right? There's a difference between that and, and then, um, you know, like in some, in some other buildings where, you know, you're, the people you trust have, have rotated through. Or, and, and, and I think that's, that's in, and not inclusive to just these four main characters, but it, it's interesting because that continuity you see in, in all of these guys, that's something they're sort of hunting for, right? Mm -hmm. um, Kyle Shanahan's pursuit of, of Lynch, right? And then in that continuity for, you know, kind of you, no matter where the organization or the record, what the record says, hunting up that continuity. Um, you, you've seen that. Um, it, what I'm curious to see is like how Matt LaFleur will sort of, reemerge um, and, and what his identity will now be now that he maybe doesn't have the continuity that he's been used to in terms of the quarterback. Um, that, that's something that, that I'm fast. I'm very interested in, in seeing not necessarily because it's something I've learned concretely now, but something that definitely has stood out to me in terms of how the ecosystems around these coaches exist and what part they've played in that in, in shaping it and also kind of keeping it continuous. And, I've never done a a five part series uh, podcast. My podcasts are usually there's a lot less thought put into my podcast as as you know as a guest than this really impressive series. So I have to ask you in terms of your your process and developing this podcast, is there anything you learned about yourself? and about how you think about the league or how you interact with the league during the process of putting this together that you would perhaps think about again, if you were doing a second podcast series. Yeah. Well, I'd be much more prepared for how grueling the process would be in general. Um, because what people will obviously never see is like the days and days and days of uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of word scripts for, for each episode because you want it to feel like a story. and But mm -hmm. you're writing a script, which is very different from writing a long form or a feature. Um, and, and the interviews were one thing because I'm, you know, I'm used to that. The interviews were uh, brutally logistic, brutal logistically speaking. Um, that's a whole other behind the scenes mm -hmm. series. But in terms of the... Um, in terms of the process itself, the scripts, and then after the, you know, re you record and do all these things, like, what I didn't realize is how often you'd be getting sent back stuff. So I hate my own voice, first of all, now. And I kind of hated it before, but I definitely hate it now. But, like, I'm sitting there over hours and hours and hours of cut-ups and interviews and, and rehearing and re-listening to this probably, a, you know, a million times over and over and I start realizing that I probably need uh, to figure out how this has affected, like, my dog psychologically <laughs> because there came a point, Bill, um, and, and you've seen pictures of Tucker and videos of Tucker, yes. and he's very quirky and he's very, um, he's very smart. Mm -hmm. And there came a certain point where 
just to have a different type of sound, you'd be listening to these cut-ups in all different kinds of ways, right? So you listen with your headphones, you listen on your phone, you listen on right. your computer, you listen however you think people will consume it. And there came a point where I would start to have like the, my volume up on my computer and my dog Tucker, when certain coaches would start speaking, he would grab his squeaky broccoli Mm-hmm. And he would start squeaking it in just <laughs> incessantly, like loudly and like staring at me and just squeaking this broccoli as certain, but only certain coaches as they were speaking. <laughs> and, and I'm like, what is happening here? We need to unpack this. I don't even know how to start unpacking this. <laughs> like, what is going on? So I think I would probably, uh, I would probably start there and figuring out how to create a more functional workspace so that all uh, organisms in my house are accounted for. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. I did not realize that that could have that sort of effect on, on my dog Maggie is mostly disinterested in anything related to football. So uh, different dogs react in different ways. So you may, my hope is that dogs around the world are not negatively impacted by this series, but I know <laughs> I got worried. Like everyone I, listen and he- listen with headphones. Cause I'm not sure <laughs> if it's like the, t- the, the tone of someone's voice or what, but it was just like only very specific coach. Like, like every time I'd have a clip of Kyle Shanahan talking, he would start squeaking the broccoli. And I'm like, so do you not like the sound of his voice? What's going on here? You know, does he, does he sound angry? Like what's happening here? Well, keep in so. mind the, the very beginning of the series, Jordan, as you know, as the person who put it together is like a, a, a three minute, it feels like a three minute trip through the brain of Kyle Shanahan. Yes. And so maybe he was frightened. That's maybe that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it is so far so good. Literally as when we finish up, I'm going back to listen to the rest of the second episode and the rest of the series. It is such a delight to listen to. You get so much insight into these people who we talk about so often and so, Jordan, please tell the listeners where they can listen to your series talking about these different coaches. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Um, you guys can find the Play Callers wherever you get your podcast. Right now, it's living on the Athletic Football Show podcast feed. Um, soon will be in its own separate feed. Um, but for now, it's all over my Twitter, at Jordan Rodriguez. It's all over my threads, at Jordan underscore Rodriguez. Oh, wow. Because we're doing all of these these new ones now. Um, and um, yeah, you can find it. Of course, you can find it on theathletic.com. You can listen ad-free on the Athletic app. Um, wherever you get your podcast, this thing will exist. And um, what I what I also want to add is is find some find a good way to listen to it because our sound designers Mike Smeltz and Kent Garrison I mean truly they made this thing three dimensional mm-hmm. um, you will feel like you're inside these buildings they 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 put in like whiteboard swipes and squeaky marker sounds <laughs> when Kyle Shanahan's uh, dry erase board is being disc- I mean it just sound, a, a rocking you know rocking chair sound I mean it's just it's it's really beautiful what they've done with this and there's a lot of musical um, inspiration and musical um, Easter eggs in the series as well lots of um, lots of things that I hope people really get a kick out of and enjoy through the course of the series so thank you so much to everyone who's already listened and, and to those who will listen Awesome. Well, Jordan, we'll have you back on, of course, later on this year to talk about the Rams and everything you're doing. But until then, thanks so much for hopping on. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks so much to my guest, Jordan Rodriguez of The Athletic. 
you know we love having Jordan on the show, one of the most insightful people, and I think someone who has such a smart perspective when it comes to thinking about the NFL. I've recommended it highly during the podcast. Cannot say anything more. Just definitely check out um, Jordan's work here talking about these really fascinating people in the NFL. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy it if you're a football fan. Check out the play callers over on The Athletic. Thanks for uh, tolerating a week off. I I was on vacation last week. It was my birthday. Uh, Had a nice week, but we're back every week now until the start of the season talking about the NFL. So have this episode this week. We're going to talk, I believe, uh, about some of the stuff happening on ESPN next week. A really cool feature that's been coming out. I don't want to tease it too much, but uh, one of our colleagues has been doing some great work. want to talk to him about that. But we'll be back next week. More NFL stuff here on The Bill Barnwell Show. So thanks so much for listening.